Apostle Matthew reports towards the end of Jesus' ministry, there was, in fact, an ugly, competitive spirit amongst the disciples. And especially so when James and John and their mother came to Jesus to try and secure a special privilege in this kingdom that Jesus had been talking about. And when they did that, well, it set the other apostles off. In Matthew chapter 20, we're told when the ten heard about this, they were indignant with the two brothers. And as tempers fled, there was no doubt some angry words uttered between the disciples of Jesus. So Jesus in Matthew chapter 20, verse 25, he calls them together to sort out this mess amongst his disciples. And he says this, Matthew 20, verse 25, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them. He's saying, you know how it works in the world? They rule over other people. And their high officials exercise authority over them. But not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first must be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many so it seemed that Jesus, in the middle of this controversy, in the middle of this infighting amongst his disciples over who is the greatest or who can get the greatest position in this kingdom that Jesus is bringing in, Jesus addresses it. And this master teacher, this man of authority, and these men who have followed him for years now, you would think that as he addresses them so pointedly, so accurately, so definitively, you would think that they would get it. How could they miss the point? But knowing them, and this morning, I want to say, and knowing ourselves, it didn't work out that way. Even with those disciples who have devoted their whole lives, who have left everything to follow Jesus. It didn't work. Several days later, when they arrived in Jerusalem for the Passover, the apostles there wandered in to that room to have that final meal with Jesus. But as they reclined around the table, they reclined, we read in the Gospels, with dirty feet. So Jesus, just days before his death, and with such clear and direct teaching, not one of them in that room, around that table, thinks to themselves, oh, remember? Remember what Jesus had taught us? How very human they were, and indeed, the book of Philippians teaches us is how like us are they. In John's Gospel we're told in chapter 13 that the evening meal was in progress and Jesus gets up from that meal and, and he in fact takes off his outer clothing and he wraps a towel around his waist 
And after that, we're told he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with the towel that was wrapped around him. And what an electrifying moment that must have been. What a moment of condemnation for those disciples, those disciples arguing over who would be the greatest, being told by Jesus about what it is to be great. And here in this moment, here the Lord himself washes their feet. In ancient Jewish writings, in, in the ancient Jewish documents that we have, we are told that you could, you could pretty well force a slave to do anything. Do you know what you couldn't force a slave to do because it was just so beneath them? You could not force a slave to wash anyone's feet. And yet, Jesus takes it upon himself. Jesus, in the most humble way possible, clothed only with a servant's towel, washes his feet, their feet. Can you imagine? Can you imagine that room? Can you, can you imagine the silence that perhaps would have descended on that room as the disciples hear the trickle of water as it's poured on each person's foot from man to man as Jesus goes round that room, washing those dirty feet, the incarnate Son of God himself, close to naked, washing their feet, washing the feet of men who are prideful and arrogant. This goes on to say in John's Gospel that no servant is greater than his master, that in fact they are to do what he has done for them. And it's so simple and it's so striking about what Jesus is saying and yet the reality is it's so hard. The logic that Jesus has, the logic of the gospel kind of stalls in our hearts. It bounces off the hardness of our hearts. Because so often, how do we relate to others? Well, we size people up. We size them up for their benefit to us. Indeed, sometimes we exploit others for our own ends. And we clothe often, as Christian people, our own selfishness in Christian-sounding language. Given our nature, the heart of humanity, and how it is bent towards self-centeredness, it's always been difficult to follow what Jesus is saying, to follow his directive. It was difficult in Philippi. It was difficult in Philippi. We saw that last week with those words to a church of all places. Do nothing out of selfish ambition and vain conceit. Why don't do anything like that? Because that's what was going on within this church. It was hard for the disciples. It was hard in Philippi. And it's hard for us. Embracing humility is hard. It's hard in any at any time of any time, and it's hard in any relationship. It doesn't get easier the closer you are to the person. In fact, perhaps sometimes it gets more difficult. It's hard within a family. It's hard within a church. It's hard, and yet Paul is calling the Philippian church to something that's 
that's hard, beyond what's just hard. He's calling them to a life, back in chapter 1, worthy of the gospel. And what does that look like? That's what Paul wants to show us here in Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 to 11. We see in those words, if you want to open up your Bibles, we see in those words that the centre of the book, of this book, the, the theological heart, the driving engine of this whole book here in that section, the jewel of the crown, considered, as I said before, by many scholars to be the greatest sentence within the whole Bible because there is a fascinating dynamic that's at work here. We see what Paul is saying here in just these couple of verses. We see this dynamic, one of being lowered down, down and down, and one of being brought back up again to life. And indeed, what we see in Jesus' life, in his humiliation and in his exaltation, we have a picture of what it is to be a Christian. It is to be humbled like our Lord. For no servant is greater than their master. And one day, we read in the book of Revelation, we will be exalted with him. We will reign like kings, we're told in Revelation chapter 3. But in these last days, it will be one of humiliation. So firstly, um, I want to focus the sermon uh, in two parts. Firstly, on going down and then on going up. So firstly, on going down, we read there in verse 5 that Paul's concern is for their minds. And it's not their minds as we think of it, have the same mindset. Paul wants this reality to work itself, to work its way out. As you see there at the start of verse 5, in relationships with one another. Paul wants the logic of what's happened in Jesus' life, the way he's been brought down, and the way in which he's been exalted. He wants that, not just to be a nice reality that they tick off and agree with. He wants it to be a transformative reality in the life of this church. And we see the, the flow of Christ's descent. There in verses 6 to 8, we see, we're going to see it in three ways. Firstly, his humility in all eternity, there in verse 6. Secondly, his humility in his incarnation, that is, him coming to earth in verse 7. And we're going to see his humility in his crucifixion, there at the end of verse 7 and verse 8. We're going to see Jesus go down, down, down in verses 6 to 8. So firstly, his humility in eternity, verse 6. We're told that Jesus, he who was being, who, whose being was in the very nature God. There in verse 6, Jesus says in John chapter 17, verse 5, And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory that I had with you before the word world began. John Calvin says that the form or nature that the Apostle Paul is speaking of here is of God in his majesty. The Apostle Paul is saying that if, if you could see God, you would see the Son in all his luminous glory, just like his Father, in being very nature, God. 
And this sounds like just a, you know, for those of us who are familiar with this passage, it sounds like dramatic theological, sounds like a dramatic theological phrase that can bounce off us. But the reality of what the Apostle Paul here is speaking of is breathtaking. We don't often even know what we are declaring when we declare, say, in the Nicene Creed, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made. The Apostle Paul wants this reality to take hold of our hearts. From all of eternity, the Son has existed. He's existed in the form of God. The book of Hebrews says in chapter 1, verse 3, that the Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being. The eternal Son is not a mere reflector. It's not as if the Son is like a mirror and that God's glory just kind of bounces of him, but he's a very representation of who God is. Jesus says, if you have seen me, you have seen the Father, who being in very nature God and Christ and the eternal Son shine forth in their own essential glory as do the Father and the Spirit in what we call the Holy Trinity from all eternity. The eternal Son has existed. But what's remarkable about what Paul is saying here is that he's existed in humility from all eternity. Because I've looked there in verse 6, he did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage or something to be grasped after. Unlike the church in Philippi, unlike the disciples who are grasping at any possible way in which they can be glorified, in which, in which they can be seen as great, we're told that the Son, the Eternal Son, who has been with his Father, his equality with God was seen as not something to grasp after, but as a qualification for him to descend to his people. Christ's humility was on innovation 2,000 years ago. The eternal Son has been humble for all of eternity. And he did not hold on to it. And he humbled himself even before the incarnation. So he's humble in eternity. Secondly, he's humble as he comes to earth there in verse 7. Rather, he did not make, rather, he made himself Nothing, taking on the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. Made himself nothing here is literally, uh, it's translation, the, the literal translation, the literal words here are, he, he emptied himself. And what it says that the son emptied himself, it doesn't mean that he emptied himself of his divinity. It's not when God came to us in the incarnation, when Jesus came to earth, it's not as if he became less God. No, he was fully God as he took on human flesh. But he emptied himself. He emptied himself in two ways. And you see 
The Apostle Paul explained those two ways. Firstly, he takes on the nature of a servant, the form of a servant. It's the same servant, same word back there in verse 6. It's not as if Jesus is just uh, putting on the show of a servant. No, verse 7, he really is a servant. It's not a show. It's reality. And, and so he empties himself firstly in taking the nature of the servant, but secondly, in taking human likeness. He doesn't exchange being God to become a servant, but as God, he takes on servanthood, being made in human likeness. He came fully as a man, but not merely as a man. Thirdly, Christ is not just humble in eternity. He's not just humble as he comes to us but he's humble in verse seven at the verse at the end of verse seven and verse eight, where the apostle Paul here bottoms out of his humility. Finally, he becomes who he is. He displays his humility in his crucifixion by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. As a real man, as God Himself walking amongst us, Christ humbles Himself. In fact, He humiliates. Himself. It's a self-humiliation for who in the cosmos, who, who could possibly humble him? Apostle Paul reminds us that it was Christ's decision. It was his own decision in light of his Father's will. It was not Pilate who humbled him. It was not Herod. It was not the high priest. It was not the Romans who ratcheted up the pressure upon him. But Jesus says in John chapter 10, no one, no one takes my life from me. He humbles himself. It is his own doing. He's not holding on tightly to equality with God. It's his own doing. He's not emptying himself by means of pressure from another. It's his own doing. He's not becoming a servant. It's his own doing. And in his death, as well. It's his own doing. And it's not just death that the Apostle Paul speaks of here. It's a particular kind of death. It's even death on a cross. In humanity's evil creativity could not you could not kill a man in a more shameful and painful way. And in fact, in the ancient world, it was too polite even to say the word. Christ has humbled himself in his death, but in a particular death, in his death on the cross. He has become an obscenity. And it's not just the shame that he bears. It's also the curse as a judgment of the world's sin is placed upon him. So Christ is lowered down, down, down. And here he's calling his people to look at him as their model. Rather, in humility, he's saying to us, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each to the interest of others. And here, I don't know if you've uh, seen those uh, medieval catapults, and, you know, that they flung, they're using kind of sieges. And they fling all manner of things, you know, in the castles, these 
great kind of uh, timber constructions, and they've got this kind of ratchet that they uh, that they wind as they wind down this kind of flexible lever. That's what's happening here, as the apostle Paul speaks of his humility in eternity, his humility as he comes to us in the nature of humanity as a human and as a servant, and as he becomes obedient to death, even death on the cross. On the cross, it is ratcheted down, and he is sprung loaded. And from the depths of his humiliation, the Apostle Paul changes the direction from being lowered to being raised here in verse 9. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place. It's because of his humiliation. It's not simply a reality that happened to be after his humiliation. It's because of his humiliation that he has been raised, that the rope on that catapult has been cut, he's been flung into glorious exaltation. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name. It began with his resurrection. As the grave could not hold him on that Easter morning, there he comes with those clothes of his humiliation, alive, more alive than he ever was before, more real than he ever was before, because death could not hold him down. And he was with his disciples for 40 days, teaching them. But on that 40th day, he leads them out to Bethany. And in the last verse of the Gospel of Luke, we're told that he departed and was carried to heaven. And the great message of the ascension is that Christ has been received back into heaven, and he will return again as the angels proclaim the book of Acts. And here, we're told that he reigns. Verse 9, he reigns in heaven. God has exalted him. And literally, the language that the Apostle Paul uses is, God has super exalted him. Incredibly exalted him. This compound word is only used. This compound word is only used in this one occasion in this way. God has exalted him in his resurrection, in his ascension, in his exaltation, and in his heavenly session as he rules above all. And he's been given a name. In fact, it could be that he's been given a new name. Given the name that is above every name. Many of you will know that Christ had many names, scores of names. The door, the lamp, the light, the alpha, the omega. But here we're told that he's been given a name. He's been given God's own name. Verse 11 identifies Jesus as Lord. He's given the name that the Old Testament speaks of the Lord himself, of Yahweh. That name, we're told here by the Apostle, has been given to Jesus. The covenant name in his exaltation. Now he is above everything. Everything that he has once served. And it is clear. And it is obvious that his name now is above Everything He's been given the Father's name. He's been given the name of the Lord. 
And that the name of Jesus, every knee shall power in heaven and earth and in under the earth and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. The Apostle Paul here is referencing very clearly our first reading from Isaiah 45. And Isaiah 45 is one of the most majestic chapters in all the Old Testament. It's a chapter where the sovereignty and the power of God is clear. And in Isaiah 45, verse 23, it's echoed in Paul's language here in Philippians 2. In Isaiah 45, verse 23, God himself says, By myself I have sworn, my mouth has uttered in all integrity a word that will not be revoked. Before me every knee will bow. By me every tongue will swear. The Apostle Paul grabs this majestic chapter about God's sovereignty and his unique power. In fact, four times in Isaiah 45, we are told that he is the Lord and there is no other. He is the Lord and there is no other. And here the Apostle Paul takes the uniqueness of that role of Yahweh himself, of the Lord himself, and he gives it. He gives it to his son. He gives it to the Lord Jesus. Jesus is the Lord of Isaiah 45. And in this dazzling revelation, we're told that all will bow before him. All, whether human or spirit. All, whether alive or dead. No one is excluded. Demonic or good. All will bow before this Lord, the Lord Jesus. Some will bow in ecstasy and worship. And those that refuse to on this earth will one day bow in mourning shame. But the Lord sealed it back in Isaiah 45. He sealed it with his own oath. By myself I have sworn. And the Apostle Paul gives this unique place of the Lord to his son, to God's son, the Lord Jesus. Regardless of how stubborn our world is, regardless of how stubborn indeed we are, one day, the Apostle Paul is saying to us, one day all will bow before this Lord. The only question is when. Because every knee will be bent. And those bent knees will be reflected on what's on people's lips with their mouth. Those bent knees and those lips will declare that Jesus is Lord, that he is the Messiah, that he has come to save, that he is the Lord, the divine one, the glorious one. And so, friends, we confess this today. We confess this reality today as we say in the creed, as we read from his word, we confess it today. Even though a world, our world will not confess it at this moment, they one day will. And we speak of Jesus and his lordship to all and plead that many, indeed just some, would turn and worship him as Lord now before all of eternity.
Pride is a main place.